Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Films on Trial. This week, episode number 16, Blade Runner. I'm Gav. I'm Alex. I'm Dave. I'm Joel. Basically, we are four lads from Liverpool who love to sit around and bitch about films. You could say we're George Harrison Ford. Oh, oh. I, actually, actually, uh, th- after the initial second of distaste, I actually quite like that. <laughs> oh, thanks. Like, that's pretty much like everything I say, to be honest. There, pretty much, it's pretty much. It's got to sink in. So, as I said before, this is Films on Trial. If you've never heard the show before, we basically take a film and we put it on trial. It is as simple as that. There'll also be quizzes, trivia, banter, a caption contest, and some biffy songs as well. But before we go into it... This is a regular part of the show. It is the news. Hang on, hang on. I I, I can't do this with two hands. Hang on. That was, uh, that was my favourite one ever, yeah. Right, you, oh, that was yeah, impressive. You nailed it. That yeah. was pretty hard to do with holding the mic as well. Okay, right. So, what we're going to do here is go around in a circle and talk about some newsworthy topics that have happened this week. So, without further hesitation, Joel, what is your piece of news for the week? Well, Kingsman 2 has gone straight in to number one at the box office. Box office. It's overtaken it. So... I went to see this film yesterday, actually, pretty interesting story, um, which I'll get to. But I did look at a few uh, little bits and bobs online, and apparently they want to make at least three of them. Um, Dwayne Johnson has has possibly been uh, touted as as a villain for the third one. Um, And also, they said they could possibly do some spin-offs with uh, Statesman. Which is like the, the kind of like the US branch, which which they turn to uh, with like Shannon Tatum and stuff in there. Uh, but funny story yesterday, actually, when when uh, we went to the cinema, uh, walked up to go, and you know the guy that that checks your ticket and says, uh, you know, it's screen whatever. Uh, so he checked it and he said, oh, uh, Kingsman, screen one. Uh, so we went and we sat down. I like to get there and watch, you know, watch some of the trailers. First trailer was um, uh, the new Saw film, uh, Jigsaw. Aye. The next one was. Um, I think it was something called like the ritual or something. Some lads get trapped in like a, a forest in Sweden. Uh, then the next one was um, it was an advert for the Evil Within. You know the video game. Because oh, right. uh, could anyone guess what the next trailer was? Was it a trailer for Kingsman? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was a trick question. There wasn't another trailer. Uh, but basically, uh, the screen went black, and um, you know, like it expands when the film comes on, and then like uh, a little red balloon just floated onto the screen, <laughs> and, it came on, and it was it. And I was like, what the f-? so the guy had obviously told us the wrong screen, so we just got up, like legged it out, and uh, we almost fulfilled accidentally fulfilled Gav's lifelong dream of paying for one film but but watching two. It's going to say you were there man you were actually there you had good reason <laughs> to guys take you to the wrong screen oh my word one of these days it's going to happen we're going to pay for our usual £30 ticket at the cinema and end up going and watching at least two films <laughs> but um, so has anybody else had the chance to watch Kingsman 2 any thoughts? Yeah I got to see it actually it was really good I enjoyed, but I really liked the first one I think if you liked the first one give the second one a shot if you did not like the first one don't bother it's much of the same again and it's not quite as good as the first one but it is still really good so yeah if you did not like the first one really don't bother How s- jeff bridges is in it right uh he is yeah i love jeff bridges is he is he is he good it's at it? a fairly kind of small part i would guess he's like um 
you know, do you remember Michael Caine in the first one? He was yes. like the leader of uh, the Kingsman. He's like the the statesman equivalent. Okay, great. Yeah. So they've got this big stellar cast, but a, a lot of people have said they're not really using them that much. Like Channing Tatum's not in it as much as you might think, as according to the trailer and the poster. Uh, Halle Berry, same thing, really, to be honest with you. So it's like, they've got this big star cast, but they're still just hanging it on Taron Egerton and, to a degree, Mark Strong and Colin Firth. So it's just keeping to the principles. So it's not straying too far from the original film. So what about Colin Firth's character in it? Because we all know what happened to him in the first film. So to see him included in the second film was a bit of a, was a, bit of a surprise initially, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Um, the way they explain that is completely incomprehensible. Okay. It is an absolute bullshit reason <laughs> really. for, for how his life was saved. It does not make sense in any way, shape, or form. But it, 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 it fits in with like how, how ridiculous the film is. Yeah, you just kind of you actually don't mind. You just kind of let it wash over you, and it's like, yeah, whatever, that'll do. Mm, okay. Then what about Elton John? <laughs> I did see it's, him on the poster and I had to at least quadruple take. It's, it's hard to describe without watching it and just put it that way. Yeah. Really? I'd, Please try. <laughs> I'd say there are moments that are really quite cringeworthy. Because oh. Elton cannot act. There's a bit, I don't, I don't know, if I'm spoiling it, when I say Elton John karate kicks someone in, in the face. No. No, you haven't spoiled it. <laughs> you made me kind of want to watch it. Yeah, it piqued my interest, yeah. definitely. Yeah. So out of ten, what would you guys give it? Uh, a solid seven and a half. I'd, I'd give it an 8 I'd, be bit, I'd give it an 8 it's uh, pretty good so in comparison to the first film better or worse it's worse but it's more of the same so it's only marginally worse okay yeah I'd say like Dave says it's very similar probably slightly bigger budget so some of the stunts are uh, you know a little bit bigger and better than last time Okay, so, yeah, it sounds good. I'm gonna, you, are you going to go and see it, Jeremy? I'm probably going to go and see it, to be honest, yeah. If not, for anything but to look at Elton John act. Karate kick. And karate kick somebody. Sure. Uh, how big is the person that he karate kicks, by the way? Huge. Oh, Huge. really? It's like, yeah, this guy could be bodyguard for Mike Tyson or something. Okay, and uh, was Elton John on some sort of platform at the time? He was on platform boots. He's wearing no platform shoes. That <laughs> oh, right, okay, yeah, 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 that <laughs> yeah, does count. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much for that little impromptu review of Kingsman 2 there. Uh, so, Dave, what is your piece of news of the week? Uh, piece of news I want to mention, I thought might be an interesting one to see what people think about, given some of the topics that come up in this podcast. Uh, Mel Brooks has made a statement where he says he doesn't believe that Blazing Saddles, one of his best-known comedy films, would ever be made today. He doesn't think the script would get past the executives simply because he thinks studios these days, when it, especially when it comes to comedy, are too politically correct. He says it's gone too far one way. He's all for diversity. He's all for respect, but it's gone a little too far, in his opinion, and he says it could be the death of comedy as we know it. Mm. I uh, just wanted to gauge people. What, what do you think? Is Mel Brooks just an embittered old has-been, or is he a, a pro of, of Hollywood who maybe might have a point? No, it's a, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a really hard like line for comedies to, to go along between you know being politically incorrect and being able to say everything you know to push the boundaries, whereas also sometimes comedies can comedians can just go too far and it just starts you know, going, you know, uh, bolstering stereotypes. So, uh, to be honest, my, my opinion is uh, I don't mind political correctness. I think it's it's just good politeness towards people, and I think it sort of shows, you know, it, it's good to encourage respect, even if it is at the cost sometimes of comedy. I'd, I'd, I'd rather the political correctness. You know. I, I think I'm kind of the other way. I went to see um, Ricky Gervais uh, this year, and he actually does like a full sketch on this whole subject because uh, a lot of what he does is kind of, uh, you know, you would say on the line. Um, like there's a joke about like a dead baby and all that type of stuff. Um, but it makes like a really good point where say if you make like a joke um, that's racist, but a joke 
about race and doesn't have to be racist, if you get what I mean. Yeah. You can say yeah. a joke, yeah. you know, that some people may find racist, but it doesn't mean that it is racist. It's just a joke about, you know, racism, basically. Yeah, I think uh, Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor writing Blazing Saddles and having jokes about African-Americans and Jewish people, that is that, that, that is fine because it's them talking about their ethnicities, their, you know, religions, their, you know, it's a... a basically poking fun at themselves whereas you know if you go and see one of these terrible disaster movies or you know scary movie 18 or whatever a lot of the time it isn't and it is just poor stereotypes and it's you know a bunch of probably white writers just writing really distasteful jokes so i honestly think it depends on who is writing the joke and who's delivering it as well i think mel brooks was very very good at the day and i kind of disagree about political correctness going going mad or whatever you know he's saying in that is it just a case of our humor is developing a bit more you know something that was funny back in the 70s might not be as funny now so maybe that sort of slapstick humor that was used so well in airplane doesn't go very well now i mean a lot of mel brooks's comedies use that same sort of humor which were very kind of visual side gags but i think maybe have we developed more uh, you know our, our comedy tastes have maybe broadened a little bit and those sort of things aren't funny anymore i think humor has developed especially when you look at like what used to be funny in terms of like i hate the, the bring it up but the mickey rooney uh character oh god what in breakfast at tiffany's Tiffany's was meant to be comic relief it was meant to be quite loud you look back at it now and it is just this is kind of offensive i mean that's good to go isn't it i mean if political correctness has stopped mickey rooney doing that (laughs) thank god but But if it stopped blazing saddles i know what joel's saying then it would be a shame because i I don't think blazing saddles uh, you know i don't think that does cross any lines i don't think that does you know reinforce prejudice it doesn't he uses a couple of slurs which i don't does, think yeah you, you, you wouldn't, wouldn't get, get away with now no but that's what he's saying he wouldn't be able to have the script that he wanted it would have been severely edited by the executives but i think yeah i think humor has developed i think it's a bit more refined i think uh a fellow putting on a funny accent it's like hi ah, he's foreign it's like that it's not funny anymore yeah. i think people have progressed a bit so i think i think it's, it's a step in the right direction yeah, well, thank you very much, guys. Uh, my piece of news for the week is pretty much verbatim from my last piece of news, uh, but I'm just changing a, a name and a film. So this week, there's been the announcement that Linda Hamilton will be returning to the new Terminator uh, to the Terminator franchise when she stars in the new Terminator film. It's going to be released next year. Apparently, it's going to be a direct sequel to Terminator 2, so it's going to completely ignore Terminator 3 and the fact that she actually died in the film. And it's going to see her... It's not going to be in between Terminator 2 and Terminator 3. It's just going to ignore... Well, maybe maybe it will. Um, But uh, would that work? Because I think Arnie would be visibly aged, as would Linda Hamilton. That's the problem with that. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact that he would be very aged in the new third film, but then the old third film, he'd be a lot younger, Mm. you know, 21, you know, 15 years. I suppose when people are moving through time and what have you, there is kind of an excuse yes. waiting oh. in the wings so it depends how well they use it thing is though if they do too many sequels and they just mess around the timeline too much it gets to the point when it's like anything can happen and they come back and change this and so I don't know I, where is it with the um, where, where are we with the actual story now because you know Terminator 2 they averted you know the apocalypse and then Terminator 3 it happened so I mean with Genesis and, I, and all of those where, where you know 
I, I just think it's a very complicated timeline as it is, to be honest. I've got to confess, I switched off halfway through Genesis. So right, I yeah. don't know where we're up to. <laughs> yeah, Genesis played around with it completely and redid it. There was bits where it was going back to 1984, there were bits where it was going back to 1993 or whenever the second one was, and it just completely messed it all up. And I don't think it, well, it wasn't very well received at all. I don't think the story was very good either. And some of the action set pieces were all right, but it was almost like the film had been written around them. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a, a bit bland, and I think they just need to leave it alone. Uh, I think. I mean, I'll probably go on to this in a little more detail, but later on. But there are some directors, producers, and writers who like create a really good story and then just don't learn how to leave it alone case in point you know uh, george lucas the fact that he created star wars and then all these years later he's still tinkering around with it and he's still trying to expand on it and sometimes it does more harm than it does good and i think that might be the case with terminator as well but i think it's going to be very interesting because it will be linda hamilton and ridley scott reuniting the first time since the divorce and uh, I remember reading a piece a while back, you know, in the early 2010s, and it was by Linda Hamilton saying that she had, you know, such a roller coaster relationship with Ridley Scott, uh, Ridley Scott, sorry, uh, James Cameron, and it was a case of, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to work with him ever again, sort of thing. And so it seems that they've kind of put aside their their differences for at least one more film, one more paycheck, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Ridley uh, Scott's uh, another good example of uh, too much fucking with things, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> yeah, but I think I'm going to go into that in a bit more detail later on, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, so moving on, Alex, what's your piece of news for the week? Uh, my piece of news is the new, uh, it's, it's a trailer for Wes Anderson's new film, uh, which caught my eye just because it seems like a very odd premise. So it's set in a dystopian future, Japan, where dogs have been banished to an island made of garbage. And uh, after a, a, a outbreak of canine flu, uh, he, there's an odyssey to find a boy's lost pet so it's done in the same stop motion that wes anderson used for fantastic mr fox it's got obviously wes anderson film it's got a stellar cast let me guess go on uh, bill murray yes uh dave edward norton yes um uh, jeff goldblum yes owen wilson not uh, yet, but probably. <laughs> uh, jason schwartzman not yet but again very likely uh uh, Harvey Keitel. Yes, Harvey Keitel. Uh, I was a bit surprised by that one, but... Anybody else? Uh, so, there's Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, and, this is an odd one, Yoko Ono. Oh, my... Yeah, Yoko Goodness. Ono. Goodness. Oh, no. I know. Oh, dear. Uh, but it's got some good reviews, and he also says that it's been in, this film's been inspired by uh, the, uh, the films of Akira Kurosawa, which, um, yeah, it seems a little, I don't know. It, well, that's I'm, just setting yourself up to fail. I can't it? wait to see it, to be honest, because it just seems so unusual. Did you say the island's made of garbage? Yes. <laughs> An island of garbage. Oh, so... I'm not quite sure where Yoko Ono fits into it. She's right at the top of that pile of garbage trees, and she has been for many decades. Yeah, she's not going to get a good thing in this Liverpool podcast, is she? Uh, and also, though, uh, there is social media users uh, have been accusing it of whitewashing because it's white American actors in a Japanese setting as well. Mm, yeah, well, you, you know my feelings on, on that subject. Oh, yeah, I voice them every week. In an animated film, um, I, you know, just to play devil's advocate, is it, it, you know, it's an animated film, should they get Japanese people to do English accent? I don't know, you know, it's... 
I suppose it's American produced, isn't it? It's American, American produced. It's set in Japan. They are well, animated. If they got them to play Japanese parts, but they're dogs. Yeah, but but then but that's the only point. That's the only devil's advocate point they've made there is the fact that they are dogs. But the fact that you know it's American produced, American directed, probably filmed, you know, created in America. That's the same for for most films these days. I mean, look but at um, fair, Ghost like, in a Shell. Japanese animation that is all filmed with Japanese. Uh, voiceover first of all Even isn't it? It and, then it, and then it's dubbed yeah. Uh, yeah. by Americans or English people or what have you yeah I, th- I think maybe uh, yeah I, 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 well the fact is it's the dogs you know so I yeah. mean I don't feel as strongly this time around as I normally do on this this uh, subject because will there ever be a podcast where we don't speak about this <laughs> nope no there won't because it's still a, an issue in Hollywood and as long and as it's an issue until they listen <laughs> no, well, we don't have to sort it out but we do have to keep on addressing it and ramming it down people's throats <laughs> okay but yeah uh, yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's one of those things, isn't it? That, I mean, I, th- I think with Wes Anderson as well, he's always going to go with the people that he knows. Mm. Um, so, it, it, you know, there was never a case when we, Dave and I were able to guess pretty much the entirety of the cast before. So it wouldn't have mattered what the context of the film was because he probably would have picked the same cast regardless. Mm. And as you said, it is a, a tale about dogs. I mean, but I was saying earlier about, you know, when, whenever I go on holiday, I use this in the present tense, and you see a, a dog or a cat or whatever, you think to yourself, I wonder if they could talk, would they have, um, you know, wherever you were, an Italian accent? <laughs> Should I think Never, about that? Ever have I, have I thought no, no, I, I, I did, but I was about five. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I know, because uh, uh, case in point, I was in Italy a couple of weeks ago, and there was this pack of wild dogs that used to live by the restaurant that we had to walk to, and every night they would come out and they would be kicking off, and sometimes they'd be like uh, <laughs> kicking off. Honestly, <laughs> they're, 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 as, it was it was quite quite tense at sometimes. Like there was about like six or seven of these these dogs that would just emerge from the bushes at night and then start barking at you. I mean, luckily, I used to keep my pockets lined with meat, <laughs> so <laughs> I just threw it at them. For a vegetarian, that's a bold move. <laughs> yeah, well, because they used to give you all these aperitifs, didn't they? And so I had all these like pieces of meat, and, and I you, you pocketed them. Yeah, well, I didn't want to send them back and seem rude, so I just put them in my pocket. <laughs> we're, we're learning an awful lot about your holiday. <laughs> Do you not think maybe the dogs were chasing you and harassing you <laughs> no. because you had your pocket? No, 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 no. Because the first time we did it, they didn't, and that's why I started lining them. I was like, it's a bit of a two-pronged attack, you know, because you save the blushes of the staff and also you keep the dogs at bay. But anyway, you're getting off topic. You know, when they were coming, oh, you know, <laughs> they they obviously weren't paying attention to me, and I was thinking. Is this because they don't understand me? Because you know, I'm, I'm yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll cut that. I'm moving on. <laughs> Going severely, severely off topic here to talk about what accents dogs would use. <laughs> right, okay, guys. Thank you very much for the news. Hang on. It was good. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you very much. Um, right, okay, so now moving swiftly on to our trailer of the week, and oh, it is a good one, isn't it, guys? It is. So we've all just... Oh, actually, I don't even know if you were here, to be honest, Joel, but... Yeah, I was here, like, uh, really, you know, kind of enthusiastic. I said, uh, you know, what's our trailer of the week? <laughs> oh, it's, um, it's, it, it's Peter Rabbit. Uh, well, no, to be honest, if somebody would have said that, I would have been like, oh, that, that's interesting. I mean, I quite liked the Paddington Bear film that was out a couple of years ago. I thought they did a decent job on that. So I'd be like, oh, can't, you know, I'm quite interested to see that. Maybe it's uh, done in the similar sort of uh, fashion. 
Uh, but no, no, no it's, it's not. not. No, no, it's not at not. all. No, it's not. I mean, it's it's got nothing to do with Peter Rabbit at all. I don't think it's. Uh, it's like Peter being a lad, yeah. just kind of knocking about, causing trouble. It's like Dennis the Menace, but yeah. in Peter the Rabbit, sort of meets like a frat party Peter <laughs> Rabbit, <laughs> mm. uh, doing shots it. off all the, all the younger <laughs> the rabbits, frolicking <laughs> 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 about. <laughs> doing yeah. what rabbits in do. fact, yeah. in the very very opening sentence, they say. The, the introduction something like oh meet Peter he bloody bloody blah, blah and he wears no, no pants, pants. <laughs> yeah it's, it's just like what well, you know a little well, on the nose don't you think you could say that about Winnie to? the Pooh as well couldn't you but like who, do, who, who is that line catered to? Is it, you know, catered to small children? You know, the fact is that he's always worn no pants you know what I mean and that, that, that's never been an issue it's a <laughs> rabbit you know yeah. Who's that? Like? I just don't understand it. It's like to, to put insult to injury as well. James Corden's doing the voice, and I, I don't know what your feelings are on James Corden, but I've, I don't. I find him very difficult. I, I don't mind James Corden. I really don't. But I don't know whether this is a role he wanted to take on. I'm pretty sure it is. I'm pretty sure somebody said, hey, do you want to be the voice of Peter Rabbit? Here's the check that you would receive if you did it. And he was like, yes, thank you. I'll have that, please. Thank you very much. I've got to even just a few minutes of this trailer and it's stamped on a big part of my childhood. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, the, the, the often quote to children, you say, Peter Rabbit would do well to stay out of Mr. McGregor's garden. It's like, Peter Rabbit would do well to stay out of Mr. McGregor's liquor cabinet. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, I know. I would rather watch Peter Rabbit being skinned and put into a giant stew. Well, we don't know how it ends, yeah, so... It's <laughs> you never know. But, and and I'm, I'm a hardcore vegetarian, and I would rather see that than watch a film with Peter Rabbit voiced by James Corden. Being a wise-cracking little rabbit. Oh, uh, it's, oh it sounds terrible. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm pretty much in Alex's camp with regards to uh, James Corden. I, I, I've never really thought he was that funny, and since he's kind of gone into the talk show game, I think he's just a massive arse-kisser, like... Every single person that appears on the show, or every single person he talks about, is like the best person ever. Just once, I just want him to say no. You know what? No, <laughs> enough. Cause, cause he, he met uh, Sean Spicer the other day, didn't he? Really? Yeah, and he, there, there was uh, pictures of him kissing him on the cheek, and you know, did he softball Sean Spicer? I don't know what that means. Well, he didn't, did he give many hard questions, or did he just... No, no, this, this was at the Emmys. The, the, there's pictures ah, of them okay. chatting backstage and kissing each other and having a good laugh. <laughs> and, you know, there's just like, is there anybody that James Corden would be at least indifferent to? You know, I, don't, I don't know if there is, to be honest. Anyway, once again, I think we've got a little bit off topic, but <laughs> I think we're all in agreement that the trailer looked awful. Yeah. Yeah, is anybody going to watch it? Joel, are you going to watch it? No. Dave? No. no, I'm not. And I'm going to probably petition that kids don't go see it. <laughs> yeah, same. I'm probably going to watch it, but you know me, I'd watch absolutely anything. <laughs> right. Okay, well, thank you very much, everyone, for that. Okay, moving on to the bulk of the show now. This is Films on Trial. So, if you've never heard this show before, what we do is we take a film and we put it on trial. Now, usually, these films are picked completely at random out of our lovely hat here, but we have to ha kind of hold our hands up and admit that we did kind of pick this one because it coincided with the release of Blade Runner, Two, whatever it's called. What's it called? 2049. Yeah, it was legitimately in the hat. We just kind of edged it up. A bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Uh, okay, so, um, so yeah, so we're reviewing Blade Runner now just purely because we're very selfish. But normally it's picked at random. But the roles, however, are also picked at random. So there were four roles in the show. The role of the prosecutor who's trying to condemn the film and put it on the shit list. There's the role of the defense who was trying to praise the film and put it on the hit list. And then there's the role of the character witness 
witness who will be giving their opinions to either side of the arguments, trying to throw a bit of weight behind it. And then there's the most important role in the show, that of the judge, who will listen to the arguments and decide which list the film will lie on, based solely on the arguments that are put to them and not their own opinion. As I said before, the roles are completely random, so it may be a case that somebody is prosecuting a film that they love or defending a film that they absolutely hate. So this week, the role of the judge is Alex, and the role of the defense is Dave, the role of the prosecution is my good self, and the role of the character witness is Joel. So, just to give a little bit of context about this film, I will read out a quick synopsis. Um, Now... I think we tried to move on a little bit last week. So instead of the raunchy teen drama or the raunchy teen rom-com, what voice am I going to do this week, guys? Um, no, I don't know. <laughs> right, thanks. Right, I'll, I'll continue with the vein of a horror, how, I think. How about an Alex Bruce impression? Oh, Jesus. Okay. Uh, this is... I might have to leave this, this is... podcast <laughs> if you do this on the podcast. <laughs> okay, I will not do my Alex Bruce impression. It is famed the world over yeah. for not sounding anything I, I'm like I'm trying Alex. to let it not really annoy me. Okay. We, we will sneak that in in a future episode. Okay, yeah, okay. right. I will do it in. Uh, I, I will do it in the guise of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think. Thank God. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> a Blade Runner must pursue <laughs> and try to terminate four replicants who stole a ship in space and have returned to Earth to find their creator. Nice, nice. Lovely. It's like he's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so without further hesitation, I... Oh, hang on, I've just remembered that we've got a little Biffy song to accompany the show. Oh, we, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so... Biffy been, songs are the best. Biffy songs are the best. So this week's film, as we said, is Blade Runner. So are you ready for this one? Blade Runner Man, where you gonna run to? Blade Runner Man, where you gonna run to? Blade Runner Man, where you gonna run to? <laughs> you like that one? Lovely, love well it. done. Love right, it. Thank you very much. Okay, so moving swiftly on. Alex, hello. Hello, so acting as judge, I um, think I'm gonna call on defence for defence's first point. So Dave, why should Blade Runner be on the hit list? Well, there's a couple of topics I could have gone for here, and I'm going to ease us in with a gentle one. I'm going to talk about visuals. Well, visuals and maybe a little bit about the vision that they've created of the future here. So the visuals of this film are regarded as some of the best that have ever been committed to cinema, and it does look startlingly good. That opening scene where you've got the uh, the vision of Los Angeles as it is now with these, like heels of fire shooting up into the skyline and it's reflected in uh, in the character of Holden in his eye in his iris you see the flames going around there it's a very startling opening opening image I think everyone remembers that and this vision of Los Angeles with the fire like I say it looks like hell it looks like Hades or the underworld or something it's it's mesmerizing and the uh, just the way the cityscape has been designed you know most films when they try and create the future or envision what the future is going to look like they kind of do it, with, it kind of looks like glossy and high-tech with this new kind of sheen to it. Not in Blade Runner. Although there are high-tech elements to it, you've got the flying cars, which are very well designed, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also got these really dirty, run-down, dilapidated parts of the city. You know, it's, it's, it's quite grimy. There's pollution everywhere. You know, it seems like one of those films that's constantly dark. There's only a few bits of daylight, really. And it, 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 that ties in with the pollution aspect, where there's like, as global warming happened, certainly global dimming appears to have done. You know, it's another thing Al Gore warned us of. 
and it's just the uh, the visuals are really stunning. It's like if you look at the uh, the Tyrell headquarters, which is if you guys remember, it's the pyramid. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, basically yeah, this corporate yeah. office shaped like a pyramid, and I thought, why a pyramid? You know, normally when you see a corporate office, there's a skyscraper, and a skyscraper is a safe space we're built upwards. In this instance, it's been built out like a pyramid, and it's it is this a sign of decadence? Is this a sign that the corporations actually run? The country these days, or even the world these days, there's no real mention of a government. Everyone seems to adhere to what uh, Eldon Tyrell has to say. You know, the the founder of the corporation. Are the companies now in charge? And he just kind of hints at that. You know, the um, is he a king in this sort of palace? Is he a god? Even you know, pyramids were used in ways of worship. I think in, in Mayan culture, and they were used as tombs in Egyptian. But it just hints at some kind of deity sort of symbolism there. And this heavy neo-noir influence. This film went away to uh, to influence the cyberpunk legacy which goes on these days. Is uh, Whether you're a fan of it or not, it influenced something. You can't take that away from it. But the neo-noir aspect, it kind of goes back to 1970s detective films. Uh, there's a bit of a 1940s influence. I mean, just look at uh, Sean Young's shoulder pads. That's 1940s, if ever there was. The hairstyle as well. It's kind of got a timeless quality to it. It's like, what decade have they tried to follow on from here? Costumes and the setting and things. It all doesn't seem to... It's not really futuristic. Quite a lot of it seems historical in certain ways, and it's really quite compelling. You know, the idea of the uh, the animals as well, I thought it was a particularly good vision, that the fact that they are now pretty much all either endangered or even extinct. All the animals that you see there, chances are, are replicants themselves. They've been fashioned and created, and it's just, it's really well regarded as one of the best, the most realistic visions of the future you're going to get. I mean, you just have to look at it and you see the adverts, all the light seems to come from these big neon flashing adverts, and it's quite jarring, you know, but it's just the over-commercialization of the future. I mean, they didn't get it quite right. There's some adverts you see there, there's like Pan Am, and it's just like, they did not make it, the 2019, sorry guys, TDX, and it's just like, it's quite quaint that they thought VHS would still be around in 2019. So some of the adverts don't quite ring true, but just the way they're oversaturated with these adverts, the commercialism, they've even got these hideous-looking Zeppelins flying overhead, whose sole purpose seems to be to beam these huge televised neon adverts down upon you. It's its nightmarish in many ways. And it's just, it is, without this film, you wouldn't have had the influence uh, upon Brazil, another masterpiece, which was made by Terry Gilliam in 1985, three years later. He cited Blade Runner and the imagery it evoked, which no film had really done when it came to the future, making this kind of grimy, polluted, dirty version of the future. Without that, you wouldn't have had another masterpiece. But that's my That's my take on visuals. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, okay, so Dave's saying that you know visually this is one of one of the best films, uh, and you know it's got a really accurate and well thought out and you know generally well done vision of a future for a sci-fi film. So, Gav, well, would you agree with that? Would you disagree? I would say that Ridley Scott here has created a very good vision. Uh, you know, however. I think, once again, it's a case of style over substance, definitely. This is probably the most visually stunning, yet boringly tedious film that has ever been created. I, 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 as Dave was saying, some of the things that he was saying, like, you know, the fact that it's almost like historical aspects of um, the, the future. The but, timeless quality. Exactly, but there's, there's also like that sort of um, it's that kind of electro Tokyo sort of feel to it. It's uh, very like neon and you know, film noir. I think he's done a very good job of capturing the style 
of the film exactly set from the book and this is going to be one of my main points is that I was a really big fan of the book and I think when you read the book I think Ridley Scott has done a really good job of capturing Philip K. Dick's initial thoughts and you know his, his vision basically and he's done a great job of bringing that to the screen however that's all that he has got from the book there's no substance there there's no characters there's no plots there's no there's nothing there's no weight behind it so i mean what i wanted to talk about was the fact that there are seven different versions of this film that have been made since the original release in 1982. Seven different versions, each one of them with a different sort of ending or a different middle. I mean, it depends on which film Dave has actually watched. He's talking about the... Sorry. For the record, I watched the final cut. The final cut, okay. So I, I, I've watched two different versions now in the past week. So the first one that I watched was the original release, which had this horrible, like, monotonous voiceover by Harrison Ford, which added absolutely nothing to the film. It was so unemotional. It was it was just basically terrible. And it actually brought me out of the visuals that I was seeing on the screen. And then I went back and I watched the final cut, which added about like four unnecessary hours of, of more kind of visuals in. Once again, I think it's a case of every single scene is very long and drawn out. I mean, it is visually stunning. Some of those things that Dave was talking about are visually stunning, but they are just so drawn out every frame takes forever to move on it just and Dave was saying about the the flames as well some of that beginning bit it's very very iconic but I mean you've got to look at those flying cars some of the CGI that he decides to use in the film especially at the beginning that opening scene are very very dated and they look embarrassing at some points and you know I just want to say that this film is just at such a slow pace that there's only so many or so much of those visuals that you can actually withstand because it's very nice kind of looking at something. I mean, you, you guys might look around my living room, which you know that I've been working on over the past few weeks, <laughs> and it looks visually spectacular. However, it's all right. I it's all right yeah. <laughs> Come on, it, it's visually spectacular. <laughs> but I wouldn't ask the you guys. Goes for a nice touch. <laughs> I wouldn't ask you. Yeah, they are. I wouldn't ask you guys to sit in this room and just look at my pink flamingo wall wallpaper for the next two hours and then come back in and tell me what you think about that you know there's only so much kind of style you can look at without having any substance behind it at all i just want to add to this this is a quote here um talking about Ridley Scott making his vision. So, he seems more concerned with creating the film worlds than populating them with plausible characters. Blade Runner is a stunning, stunningly interesting visual achievement, but a failure as a story. Now, that was actually by Roger Ebert, who, correct me if I'm mistaken, Dave, you said is a really respected film critic that you respect the opinion of? He is a highly respected film critic, but uh, can I also just say, I'm, I brought him up a little while ago with the Harry Dean Stanton obituary, did, yeah. where he said there is no, um, if if you see a film with either Harry Dean Stanton or M. Emmett Walsh in them, you know it's never going to be all that bad. Well, M. Emmett Walsh is in Blade Runner, guys. He's the police captain. So, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, but Roger Ebert actually right didn't like the film at all. He warmed to it later on, you know, a few decades later, but he still said it was it was tedious. It was uh, very repetitive. And once again, it was sort of style over substance, which I completely agree with. Um, it's some of the things that Dave mentioned there, he mentioned about, you know, this kind of, um, this constant darkness to the film, you know, there's that dark quality where you don't actually know what's happened. Well, in the book, it's a very important part of what, what, why 
LA looks the way it does, and that's because there was a giant world war, a world war terminus, and you know there's big details about that war and the resulting impact of it, you know, which it just isn't covered at all. So it's very well having the the visions there, but I wanted to know a bit more of like why why did it look like this? I mean, back in 18, 1982, 2019 wasn't a re- really a long way away. So, you know, I just felt like there needed to be something, an explanation as to how it became like that. I mean, it's all very well to kind of sit there and watch a film and go, oh yeah, I can appreciate for what it is. But if it is this, this is showing you like this vision of the future, this dystopian vision where everything has gone to shit, I want to at least kind of have a story behind it as to why that's happened. Some of the really important things as well, the animals, as Dave was saying, some of them are extinct. The majority of them are androids. I don't think that is touched upon enough, you know, that we are introduced this beautiful owl at the beginning, but in the book, Rick Deckard, he is obsessed with animals. It's almost like a, a, a class status. So the kind of, the bigger animal, the bigger the animal that you have, the more important you are. So it's always like trying to one-up, having this game of one-upmanship between his neighbours and his colleagues. That is just not covered at all in the film. And once again, it just becomes no substance to those nice visuals of, you know, the nice owls and all the other animals that are the androids, are they not? And it's just as it is, visuals, it's just a shell. There's no story behind it at all. Also, you know, the, the fact that a lot of the cast are going around really unemotive, really depressed almost, especially Harrison Ford, there's no reason behind that as well. In the book, a very kind of key aspect about how people feel and how they respond to things is because they've all got Penfeld mood organs. So you plug yourself into this mood organ and you decide on what mood you're going to feel that day. So a lot of people are kind of, they're trying to make themselves feel something. Uh, it's, it's always about, you know, if they're not feeling anything, oh, quick, let me plug myself into my mood organ. That's not explained either. It's like he's taken the kind of very core aspects of those characters as just being like kind of unemotive and he's not explained why they are like that i mean it might be to do with the surroundings the fact that the world's gone to shit the fact that they they need the organs to kind of feel anything but none of that is explained at all and i just think as i said before it's very repetitive very drawn out and it is so slow it's almost well well in fact it is incredibly boring and it's just style over substance okay uh, i'm gonna bring in the character witness but i'm just going to offer dave just a very quick rebuttal to those to that point if you just a couple of those points yeah um the uh the, you say about the multiple versions that exist and the, there, are, there are multiple versions of this film seven but, there's seven multiple versions of this film but each of these versions has those that sings its praise there's not one version which is just written off and said that was absolute crap you know that didn't work whatsoever i think the uh, the second version which was actually so uh, the first version that was released didn't test well with audiences the work print version yeah so they released the second version which has a happy a happy ending basically exactly which was critically panned so you know there's that okay okay but i'm gonna let dave do his rebuttal so go ahead dave can i rebuttal this no 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 i think we've got to end the bottles at some point go on dave someone did say you know okay the the u.s theatrical release it had the happy ending which has never made another version of the film yet it wasn't it was demanded by the studio execs this isn't the fault of ridley scott at some point his hands were tied to a chair and he was made to do to, to bend his vision to suit the studio execs ideas but there are still those that claim that is the best version they like the happy ending that's how it tested that's why this version was put out there there are those that liked it so the work print it didn't have the scroll it didn't have the credits it didn't give any explanation as to what was going on it didn't have that opening monologue at the start the narrative of harrison ford it was rick deckard now that 
was deliberately done badly because Ridley Scott did not want it included. Harrison Ford did not want it included. This was studio execs wanting a bit more explanation. They liked the ambiguity. They liked people guessing what had happened. They liked people being able to work things out for themselves. If they told you what had happened, how did society get to this state, you'd be focusing in on that and just like, oh, we need to make sure we avoid that in our real lives instead of just thinking about the issues there, about the story they're trying to tell. That's why I don't think it presents you with a definite answer as to how society wound up the way it did. Uh, so the, the voiceover was deliberately done badly. Harrison Ford said himself he did not want it included. And there's other versions of the film, like the director's cut, which was made with Scott's instruction, but then ultimately disowned by him as they did not follow what he asked them to do. Uh, some bits were too obvious. There's a, there's a theme I'm going to go into about Rick Deckard. Is he a replicant? Is he not? All ambiguity was removed in the director's cut because there's a line left in by Gaff, which is Edward James Olmos' character, after uh, Roy Batty has died. And he says, oh, you've done a man's job. That stays in all versions of the film. He then says, but are you sure you are a man? Ah, okay. Too blunt, too yeah, to the pretty point. Much. Ridley Scott yeah. didn't like it. All ambiguity gone. That never made another cut of the film either. The final cut is the one that got his approval. And you talk about your pink flamingos in your room, Gav, and it's just like, yeah, but it's not a one-trick pony. If you showed us the pink flamingos for, for a minute, great. But then you brought in a nice kitten cushion or something you bought, great. And you kept on delivering these great, beautiful visuals constantly, repetitively. This would be, that would keep you entertained for two hours. Uh, I completely disagree. Because about, about your room or about... No, no, I, I think my room is stunning, but like, don't get me wrong, I could sit in this room for two hours and, you know, lose appreciation of it. But, I, you know, I, but that's not the case. And, and uh, by the way, it's a bed, uh, a bunny, and a bear. And the, the pillows <laughs> on, the on the cushions, yeah, yeah, not, not a cat. Uh, so, the, the, I, I presumed you'd have a cat. <laughs> the thing is, <laughs> you, you would, wouldn't you? But no, I don't know. Uh, I know, because uh, then I'd have to go into the whole thing of where did they buy it from and what accent would they be speaking in if we was to look at them. So okay. it's just too complicated. Okay, look, just to, just to interject, I'm just going to let Joel, as character witness, I'd like to hear from him now. So, Joel, what, what have you got to say about the points you've heard so far? I think um, kind of like last week, uh, a little bit in the middle here, to be honest. I think, um, you know, Ridley Scott, he's kind of one of those who's extremely hit or extremely, you know, messy. He likes to mess around a lot. But I think what Dave says about, like, the visuals and all that type of stuff is, is absolutely spot on. You know, I watched the film. It was actually one of those films that I heard a lot about, you know, as a kid and, and never really watched it till later on. And it, even at that point, you know, it was like... Um, very, very kind of you know, almost eye-opening film to, to watch. But I think what Gav says, you know, the first time I watched the film, like I'd read like all the reviews and stuff, and you know the well, five out of five reviews, all that type of stuff. But the first time I watched the film, like I almost did fall asleep. To be honest, like it, it is very long and drawn out. A lot of the conversations are boring, and it's one of those films where. If you switch off for like five or ten minutes, if you pick up your phone, like reply to a text, you literally have no clue what's going on, you know, kind of five minutes later. Um, but, you know, it is one of those films where perhaps after you've watched it and you come back to it and you think, you know, you think about all the stuff that's happened and you, and you return to it, um, it you, you kind of appreciate, you know, kind of the uniqueness to it. So I think both arguments are extremely valid so far. 
Do you, do you know what? The best way to watch it is, and this this is an opinion, this is fact, is with it on mute while you're listening to the soundtrack in the background. <laughs> it is a great soundtrack. Isn't it is it, a fantastic it's soundtrack. It's a brilliant soundtrack. Yeah, yeah. The, the, Aesthetically pleasing to the eye and to the ear. <laughs> <laughs> but not to the mind. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'm going to get onto that next. All right, Gav, uh, your point is uh, prosecution. Okay, my point is about the cast and the lack there of it. So um, you might be watching and the credits roll in at the beginning and you say oh look at all these really good actors and actresses I can't wait to see this film and see what performances they deliver but no you would be grossly mistaken to think that they were going to deliver anything more than absolute blandness uh, especially Harrison Ford uh, whose character in the film is devoid of absolutely anything <laughs> Devoid of anything, does that make sense? <laughs> basically, he's devoid of everything. He's devoid of everything. Just leaves and nothing, basically. Leaves and nothing. He is, he has no characteristics at all. He is completely unemotive. He completely phones it in. Uh, you know, he gives a very, very robotic performance. And I know that Dave's going to say, oh, but the thing is, is there's that ambiguity to the character. You don't know whether he's an android or not. But the fact is, is that you've got other performers there. Rutger Howard is the is the best performer in the entire thing. He delivers probably the the most believable. Sorry, Charles. Just all of my my many different cushions have fallen on top of him, <laughs> including the bed and the bear. Unprovoked <laughs> um, <laughs> attack. So he gives this incredibly um, passionate performance, and he is the android. And I know once again you're probably going to say, "Oh yeah, well the thing is, is that that leaves you with even more ambiguity because Roger Howard gives this really like kind of emotive performance." and Harrison Ford doesn't so is it a case of you know the humans are the androids and the androids are the humans but the fact is is that there's only one decent performance in the entire film and that is Rutger Hauer the rest of them regardless of human or android deliver just bland performances and as I said before it might be a case that it is you know the future it is the fact that their surroundings are completely desolate and a completely just a wasteland that they don't have any kind of emotions because why would they but that isn't really told to us so we we don't we we've got no idea why we have no idea about Harrison Ford's motives they're not clear at all you know the fact is that he's just thrown into this situation he doesn't react to any of it in the in the book there is just this kind of constant dialogue he you know he overthinks absolutely everything in the book you, you, you've got this kind of you delve into this character's mind and his mindset and the fact none of that is displayed in the film at all it is just completely one dimensional there's no substance to the character whatsoever and you know we mentioned about that voiceover before which was just hideously dull and unemotive the fact is that he continues that performance throughout the entire thing just going on to a few more cast members you've got Sean Young who is absolutely woeful in this film she is terrible she's like a robot or, or like a mannequin throughout so the fact is is that we later find out so that the big reveal is that she's actually an android and we were supposed to believe that she was a human at the beginning but she delivers such a bland robotic performance throughout that when we're told that she's an android later on it's not even a surprise because she, she just had no human qualities to her character in the first place then we had edward james almost who 
is a great fan, he's a fantastic actor I love Edward James almost but the fact is is that he's completely underused in this film and the fact is is that his character isn't even in the book so if it's a case of oh well we were just basing it on the book that, 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 that's not that, that's not what it is you know the fact is his character was specifically written for the film so why didn't he include more of him instead they just have a few choice scenes where he makes these kind of knowing comments and then that's it we don't hear from him again he's just he, he could have been great in the film as a counterbalance between uh, you know, he, he could have been like the more human side of Rick, which just isn't isn't explained at all. And in the book, there's this really interesting point where there's like two contrasting police um, stations, uh, so kind of two like police agencies that are hunting bounty hunters that don't know about each other, so they're playing off on each other. You don't know who's an android, who's human, who's lying, who isn't. And I thought that that was going to be explained in the book as well. Maybe that's where Edmund James Olmos would come in, but no, not at all. Once again, completely stripped of all sub and no character behind him at all. Daryl Hannah, once again, completely woeful. It's the old Jude Law Gattaca argument. Is she supposed to be uh, unemotive? Is she supposed to be completely devoid of personality throughout? The fact is, is that when she's introduced to the film, she is, you know, shown as this, like, sort of really timid character that's just like kind of she's sheltering in like a rubbish heap and you know I thought oh here we go is is finally a character with some substance and she goes off she learns how to do some aerobics and before you know it once again she's completely devoid of all personality and the fact is that you know she's a, a pleasure bot or something what is it a pleasure android I mean you know it's me so I'm always going to go on about the Bechdel test but the fact is that this fails miserably with the Bechdel test and not only does it fail with the test but it completely over as the women in it. I mean, the the women, the female characters in go. it. <laughs> do you mind <laughs> this is a valid point the, the women the female characters in it are completely like, void of any substance uh, they, they are just put there to be sheer eye candy and the fact that they in, he introduced these pleasure bots which aren't actually covered in the book at all so they just, get the bops out <laughs> Oh, no. Right, listen, right, I'm trying to deliver a prosecution here, and you're trying to bring up Bapgate again. Like, no, right, let's just, we're leaving it there. I'm trying to have a conversation about female characters in a film. Or, or, or sorry, the lack of female I, I characters in a film. I was, I was. I was. Uh, to, right, to be honest, right, one of the big criticisms about Philip K. Dick is that he, he didn't write strong female characters or character, female characters with any substance. So when he finally did actually write a female character with a lot of substance in um, Harrison, well, Victor Card's wife who ran in the book, she was just completely left out of the film. You know, she was a really, really deep character that, as I said about the Penfeld mood organ before, she's one that is constantly going through the motions with regards to her mood. Rick is constantly trying to kind of get her on the right path with regards to choosing what mood she should feel. There's that sort of there's, there's that narrative, there's an extra narrative there as to kind of like who is the android and who is the human here which is completely missed out once again because Ridley Scott just left it out of the film he didn't even take aspects of the character maybe a personality traits or dialogue and give them to other female characters he just completely left them out of the film altogether the fact is is that like I compare this film to Aliens which is you know came beforehand and was Ridley Scott's sort of iconic masterpiece and the fact that 
he had these characters who were this sort of like ragtag crew of just um, riggers, weren't they? They were just kind of people who were um, moving, uh, kind of cargo people who were moving from uh, packages from one place to another. They were just, uh, you know, the normal people. You know, when we were introduced to those characters, they're talking about strikes and they're talking about pay cuts and whatever. They, they are like kind of characters that we can get behind. So when something happens to one of the characters later on, when Tom Skerritt dies, when somebody else dies, you know, like we feel that. We're, there's, there's that, there's that shock, there's that sort of like, oh my god, I can't believe that they died. I actually felt something towards them. Whereas with this film, the characterization is absolutely so terrible and so bad that we actually don't care when anything happens to the when anything happens to the characters. When it comes to the, that final scene, that was like ten minutes. You know, like, does anybody really care if Harrison Ford's character lives or dies? I don't think they do, to be honest, because there's just no depth to it at all. So anyway, once again, I just like to say, overly long, boring, and paper thin characters. Oh, okay, Dave. Do you want? Wow, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, do you want to have a rebuttal to that, please, Dave? Yeah, I, I, I just want to start with a quote. <clears throat> Harrison Ford is more like Rick Deckard than I could have imagined. If Harrison Ford had not played that role, Deckard would never have become an actual person. <laughs> Who is that? Ford Dave? radiates this <laughs> tremendous reality when you see him, and seeing him as a character I created is a stunning <laughs> and almost supernatural experience to me. Oh, wow. That was Philip K. Dick after he saw it in uh, one of the early cuts of the film. But did he say anything else about any of the other characters? He had a lot to say about Blade Runner. It's quite, it's quite, <clears> he actually, he, he had a lot to say about Blade Runner. Let, let's, let, let's be fair, Gav, that's pretty, <clears> it's pretty good. We, we're talking about this as an adaptation, okay? Now, if I can, if I can rebut. We're talking about this as an adaptation. This isn't a sort of case like Dracula, where they've called it Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It's an adaptation. You can't get all of the things that he put in this very complex novel onto the screen. It just wouldn't work. It would not make a good adaptation. Faithful may be, but it would not be good. Um, so th the way that they've done it is they've taken the core points, or the points that Ridley Scott most identified with, and they've made a film around that. And Philip K. Dick, unlike Bram Stoker, who died about seven or eight years before Nosferatu came out, the first screen adaptation of Dracula, as it were, he died beforehand. Uh, Philip K. Dick didn't. He survived until... Uh, he actually died in 1982. I think he died before the finished film actually came out of a stroke. But he did see <laughs> these early cuts. Right? Well, you laughed at that. You <laughs> laughed at that. <laughs> sounded like you just laughed at the death That's of Philip K. Dick. <laughs> I, I, I was just waiting for Dave to say that it was unrelated to him much in the first quarter of the film. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite sure it was. But, um, but you don't know, though. But we don't know. But we don't know. The autopsy did not say, you know, <laughs> Blade Runner may be a contributing factor to this. No, he loved it, though. The original drafts that he saw of the script and his involvement in the project and the original uh, screenshots and scenes that he saw, he loved. Now, you talk about the unemotive characters. That's part of the theme that Ridley Scott is trying to create here. These kind of, you know, you talk about them uh, not really interacting with anyone, you don't really feel anything for them. That's kind of what he's trying to get you to, to lean towards. These kind of isolated characters that live alone, that's why Rick Deckard's wife is not included. You want that isolation, you want this feeling that people are living alone. Look at Sebastian, who lives in this huge mansion of a house by himself. That's why he's created these little aut automaton uh, characters, these toys, as company. You know, he calls them his friends. Human beings are living this lonely existence, whereas the replicants seem to be able to partner up with each other. You know, Roy and Pris, who, you know, that opening scene where you say she's found in the rubbish, that was a ploy to get her into Sebastian's 
house. That was all an act, as it were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not kind of arguing that point, but you know, when we first introduced to her, I thought that there was something different. There was a bit of character behind it, but it just it still is. And she doesn't just learn some aerobics. Come on, that was yeah, kind of she pretty much her, pretty much does ingrained into her program. But the thing is, Roy and Pris have this very tender relationship as replicants that the humans just don't seem to be able to create. They, they kind of live in isolation. And if you look at the gunning down of Zora in the street, which is a beautifully shot scene with the glass, I think you have to agree, Alex. Beautifully shot scene. Do you have to agree, Alex? Do you have to agree, Alex? <laughs> he, he can if he wishes. But um, it's a really well shot scene. But if you look, all the bystanders, people seeing this woman get shot down in front of them, do not react. And that's not bad extras. That's not bad acting. They are told not to react because humans don't care. Humans have lost empathy. The only person who reacts and shows some horror is Leon, the real, the other replicant who sees his friend getting gunned down and is understandably distraught. This replicant is expressing more emotion than the bypass than people passing by in the street. And the thing is, why are the replicants made to break? Kind of like iPhones. Why are they made to break at four years? And the answer is, is because four years is when they start to develop complex emotions. Why is emotion such a bad thing in this society in the future? Emotion is something to be feared, to be to be crushed, to be stamped down upon. As soon as the replicants start to develop these emotions, they become a threat. And that's why they are made the break of four years. That's the tipping point. And that's why there is a real big theme about emotion. There are more themes I want to go into. I mean, am I going into my, my point now? Um, well, no, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll ask Joel to uh, come in on what side of the arguments, that, what you've just heard. <coughs> I'm going to keep opinion. it pretty brief. I think the cast kind of do put the heart and soul into the characters, really, and I think the characters are portrayed exactly how they're meant to be. Um, I, I didn't watch it and think anybody's underused, overused, whatever, too convoluted. Um, I just thought they each did a good job, and I think the tone of the film kind of sets how the characters are portrayed as well. It's not like, you know, uh, Harrison Ford, who's kind of more used to maybe more charismatic roles like Indiana Jones, uh, you know, Star Wars, all that type of stuff, and this wasn't really a film for that. It was more, I don't want to say bland, but more, um, you know, kind of normalistic in tone, and I think that kind of comes across in the characters. I'd like to just say as well that Stephen King did really praise the Dark Tower film that's just come out, so sometimes authors can be wrong. <laughs> well, Stephen yeah, King often is. I mean, that's just... That's you Stephen can't really criticise it as an adaptation <laughs> if the man who made the original source material. Yeah. Right, uh, so I think, I think it's going to be time... I think we could go on for a very long time about Blade Runner, but I think it's time to start wrapping it up, guys, I'm afraid. So I'm actually going to ask for prosecution first. Could I have your final statements now? Okay, yeah, I mean, I I will say that the visuals are very good, as I said before, but once again, I will just kind of discuss the fact that the visuals are there just as sort of eye candy. You know, it's it's a case of, if the visuals weren't there, would we still be talking about Blade Runner as being a great film? No, we wouldn't. The fact is, is that that's all it is. It's just the visuals. And if you don't have anything behind the visuals, then what have you really got? Nothing. You know, I mean, the fact is that Blade Runner, you had a great script there. You had a great story already built in, and it was just a case of borrowing that and putting it on the screen. But the fact is that Ridley Scott didn't. He got this kind of skeletal 
structure that he borrowed from the book and he tried to expand on it a bit more but it's almost like he concentrated so much on creating this futuristic vision that he just left a lot to be desired with regards to dialogue to regards to characters with regards to story arcs you know it doesn't really seem to be much there there's no substance everything that is in the film as well it's just overly drawn out it's a case of he was so proud with his scene with his setting with all the visuals that were going on he made each scene be twice as long as they ordinarily would have been because it was a case of he was so proud he wanted people to look at it and the fact is that after a while it just gets really tedious i think it would have been an like, I think it would have been an alright film if it would have been reduced to about like an hour and a half instead of like two and a half hours almost. The fact is that everything is just so drawn out to the point of tedious. Even the conversations are just so long and withdrawn. And I know you were saying before about, you know, the fact is you're questioning people's emotions and such, but the fact is is that, you know, there's, there's doing that, there's expressing that, and then there's just taking the piss. Every single conversation lasts at least 20 minutes and, and they just do not need to at all. I think the characters... Are absolutely paper thin a lot of people phone in those performances and as you said before it might be a case of Ridley Scott trying to show that some people have you know less emotions than others especially with regards to androids and humans but the fact is is that's something that has been perceived that's something that's not been explained in the film it's not something that's covered it doesn't go into any backstory as to why these people feel this way it's just once again you are supposed to kind of come up with that conclusion on your own and I think he leaves a lot a lot there is sort of ambiguous he leaves a lot for it's like an unfinished jigsaw puzzle that he's asking the viewers to go away and piece together once they've come out and I think you can ask that for like one or two things maybe but for the majority of the film it's almost like it's just a completely unfinished piece that we are supposed to kind of come up to our own conclusions with at the end so yeah okay thanks very much and uh, Dave your final point please yeah, I, I understand what Gavin is saying, but that is exactly the point that Ridley Scott was getting. This film poses many questions, but it never demands that you answer them. It never proffers any answers of its own. Instead, it coaxes you to think about the questions it's raised, to go away, and should you feel so inclined, if you wish to engage, and even if you don't, it's still entertaining. There's some great action set pieces and some great performances. And this this film is still evoking discussion to this day. You know, Gav mentioned Roger Ebert came around and actually did like the film in the end. No, because no, there's so no, much didn't. going on. There's so much going on in this film that it's, it's, you've lost my train of thought. That Gav, can I just say I'm not a big fan of Roger Ebert? So is that <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> this is the Roger Ebert discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've lost my plot chain of thought. <laughs> um, okay, we were talking about the different um, versions of the film that exist yes. out there. Is it not kind of appropriate that a film that revolves around replicants and replication exists in several forms? Does that not elicit a wry smile from you in many ways? I know it won't from Gav. No. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, this film has been preserved for the National Film Registry by the US Library of Congress, or so someone up there clearly likes it. <laughs> now, it's... As I was saying about Roger Ebert, people come around to this film, and when you first watch it, the pace is slow. I will concede that point, the pace is slow. But you come away from it and you start thinking about it. The more you start thinking about this film and the th themes it suggested, I didn't get to go through half of the stuff I had on themes, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. But if you go away and th start thinking about the biblical aspects, the, the paternal aspects, what it means to be human, the emotive aspects, there's so much to consider in this film. And people are still talking about it to this day. A film that evokes this level of discussion for people 30 years after it was made cannot possibly be bad. This film constantly makes the list of people's top sci-fi films of all times and critics and filmgoers alike. Thank you very much, Dave. All right, Joel, is there anything you'd like to add to, to the arguments you've heard so far? 
Um, not massively, to be honest. It's exactly like what I said and what Dave said. I think it's one of them films that you watch the first time and you, and you come away almost slightly disappointed. But then almost kind of, you know, when you go to bed at night, you've got nothing else going through your head and you start thinking about it again. You kind of appreciate it a little bit more. And it, it is a bleak film, kind of, I think, is a good word to use. But then when you think about it, it's it's meant to be that way. You know, it's not meant, you're not meant to come away from it like fist bump in the air, like you know as if you'd just seen star wars or something and, and the heroes you know won it's not really like that and i think you know it's it's not considered well it, sorry it's considered to be uh, you know one of the greatest sci-fi masterpieces and probably uh, you know speaks volumes about it really now to stand on another quote from Philip K. Dick. Yes, please. Oh, I've, God. No. Just leave Dick out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but only one of us has gone on about the adaptation of the book or the original novel. <laughs> As for my own role in the Blade Runner project, I can only say that I do not know which work of mine or such set of ideas of mine could escalate into such a stunning dimension. My life and creative work are justified and they're complete and completed by Blade Runner. Thank you. It is going to be one hell of a commercial success. It will prove invincible. Now, you've been talking about the novel, Gav. That was written by the author of the novel, Philip K. Don't get me wrong. You know, I said before, I think visually it's very, very stunning. And the fact is that Ridley Scott the concept, probably... He's talking about the concept of the film as well, the themes it evokes. Well, the fact is... Which I didn't get to discuss properly, I'm sorry, but it's just... The, the yeah, well, you, you were going on a bit, to be honest. We needed to wrap it up. <laughs> oh, I was going on a bit. Guys, 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 guys. We're all friends here. Right, I'm going to stop it there. Thank you very much. Uh, do you want to do, a, do you, uh, like, do you want to bring in Quiz Dave just while I gather my thoughts very, very, very quickly? Okay, yeah. So, Thank um, you very much. Are so, you two still talking to each other? Or? <laughs> no, no, I'll, no, I'll play the game. Should we make it Quiz <laughs> Alex this week? <laughs> right, so talking about the really bland <laughs> characters in Blade Runner, <laughs> I, uh, I thought that we could have a bit of a quiz here. So, uh, you know, the kind of, some of the <laughs> Android names in, in the Blade Runner film and, you know, in, in um, to Android stream of electric sheep are sort of bland in themselves so having an android called roy i thought was quite funny basically <laughs> it just didn't seem like a very android name to me but then i started going back and and kind of looking at different androids in cinematic history and a few of them have got very like kind of accountant <laughs> sort of names no offense dave <laughs> but you know they sound like estate agents and you know so that got me thinking well could you reckon dave could differentiate between Androids or cast members from the Brady Bunch. So this is a quiz I like to call Blady or Brady. <laughs> okay, so Dave, number one, Simon, is it Blady or Brady? Simon, I, I'm Blady. Blady? Yeah, why not? Joel? Blady. Brady. It is Blady. It's uh, the android from Lara Croft Tomb Raider. Mm. Okay, so number two, Peter, is it Blady or Brady? I'm going to say Blady. Okay, I'm saying Brady as well. Brady again. Okay, uh, Alex is right. It is Brady. Peter Brady, one of the kids, uh, played by Christopher Knight. Okay, uh, number three, Oliver. Brady or Blady? Blady. 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 Oh, you're all wrong. It's Brady. <laughs> so this was Cousin Oliver, as played by Robbie Wrist, and he was brought in at the very last series of The Brady Bunch to inject a bit of youth into it. And uh, many say that it was actually the death of the show. <laughs> Jesus, how old was that kid? Uh, he, he's very young. Too <laughs> young to put yeah. that kind of blame on himself. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. He had, to, he, had to be, he had to live with that for the rest. Well, you know, he's still alive. The rest of his show. He's a homeless alcoholic. <laughs> Uh, but the fact is, is that that is still used to this.
this day. So when somebody tries to kind of bring in an aspect of rejuvenate a show, it's almost called it's always called the uh, the cousin Oliver syndrome. <laughs> so uh, anyway, moving on. Number four, Andrew Blady or Brady? Blady. Lady. Lady. Okay, it is Blady. It's uh, Robin Williams' character in Bicentennial Man. Oh, God. Okay, um, number... <laughs> not Blady, really, is it? <laughs> not similar to Blade Runner, that... Well, he's an android. He is an android, yeah. So it is similar Sorry, to Blade Runner. It <laughs> it's very similar. D- d- different sort of style to it, I would say. Yeah, okay, right, it's a light-hearted sort of comedy <laughs> drama. All right, I'll, I'll give you that. Okay, uh, the next one is David. Blady or Brady? Definitely Blady. Yeah, that's uh, Aliens, is it not? Yes, Prometheus. Blady. Yep, yep, you're right. It is Blady, Michael Fassbender's character in Prometheus. Uh, the next one is Daryl. Blady or Brady? Daryl Brady. Daryl Brady doesn't seem right. I'm going to go Blady again. I'm going to go Brady, I think. I'm going to go Brady. It sounds right. Uh, Dave, you're right. It is Blady. It is from the film Daryl, which stands for Data Analyzing Robot Youth Life Form. Which of course it does. I have watched, and it, it's it's all right actually. <laughs> really, it's like Blade Runner. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know Daryl is what it is. You know what I mean. You don't go in there and start thinking about the themes behind. It. Well, maybe you should. <laughs> okay, Bobby Brady. It's got to be Brady. Sure, be. Uh, you're right. It is. Brady, played by Michael Lockenland, which I think is a hilarious second name. Lock in land. Uh, anyway, uh, Cindy. Brady. 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 It is Brady, yeah, played by Susan Olsen. Uh, okay, the next one is Ava. Blady. Um, is she like the AI? I think she's some type of AI, so Blady. Blady. Yeah, Blady is, is the uh, android from Ex Machina. And the last one is Arthur. Lady or Brady? Lady. Lady. It doesn't sound like a Brady, but I'm going to go different and say Brady. Uh, no, Dave's right again. It is Blady. It was Michael Sheen's character from Passengers. So, uh, yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you very much for that. You're very welcome. Thanks, Alex. For the quiz. Do you have a bit of uh, trivia of the week before we move on to the results? Yes, uh, my trivia is apparently Rutger Hauer was actually uh, cast blind so he, uh, he'd never met Ridley Scott and he was cast uh, in the role and apparently when he turned up he decided to play a trick on on him and turned up in like pink satin trousers and like big huge flamboyant uh, sunglasses which is obviously a bit different from his sort of character and apparently the producer said that like Ridley Scott literally turned white when he saw <laughs> Rutger Hauer on set and and yeah really freaked him out because he'd put quite a lot of money into Rutger Hauer. Oh, yeah. my way, yeah. There you go. Uh, okay, and I'm also ready to to cast my decision on whether Blade Runner's going to be on the hit list or the shit list. I'll be fairly brief. Um, you both seem to say that the visuals are incredible. Uh, Dave said it was sort of his really good vision of the future. He had the high tech, he had a dilapidated effect as well. And that it was um, like really well thought out, um, and the symbolism in it was fantastic as well. Uh, I liked what you were saying about like the building as well. Like you know, it was quite a lot within it. Uh, Gav said, "Yeah, the symbolism. You know, there was a lot of the visuals were good, but it was style over substance. And actually, Philip K's Philip K. Dick's vision for the book didn't actually materialise, and it was a failure of a story. It was too much sort of bells and whistles, uh, a little bit overproduced, not enough plot." Um, I, you know, a lot of what people were saying is there's a lot of discussion about the the story being adapted. I don't mind the story being adapted. I, I, I think the story probably needed to be, I've not read it, but it probably needed to be adapted. So I don't mind a film 
cutting bits out and taking bits and you know as long as it's not too much i actually don't mind that so i think a lot of the bits that were taken out for me it sounded like it might have been sensible to do so for the film um and I, you know the last argument i found was one of the more oh uh, gav also because you know i hate i know you hate it when we sort of uh, skip over this argument when you were talking about the female characters being uh, yeah i do hate it to be yeah, honest well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm i do hate it when i get interrupted and asked <laughs> if they got their baps out as well by the way Joel. <laughs> okay we won't we won't go back into bap gate uh, like female characters uh over sexualized i think you know that i think that's probably not a bad point i rutger howard does spend an awful lot of the end in the nip running around so you know is he being yeah, you know so, the nip, it's just shirtless. he's pretty he's pretty naked. oh come on Alex he's pretty totally like Rugger Howard takes off his shirt right or the complete over over sexualization of all the female characters there and the, the kind of introduction of pleasure bots into the story yeah. or Rugger Howard you, you see his nipples I, once I'm, you know I'm, what I mean I, I'm, I'm passing a judgment I wasn't finished I know what you're talking about um but you also said the female characters don't have any emotion, and I think this is where like I made my decision on this film because, to be honest, I never really knew where I was going to go watching this. You know, I've watched it recently, and yeah, I think I agree with most of what Joel said throughout it. To be honest, that actually I was quite bored watching it for the first time, and there were like times when characters were speaking, and I was just sort of like, "Oh, what is going on?" But um, Dave just had that argument when he said that uh, actually, you know, emotions aren't meant to be. You know, the, the, the characters are meant to be emotionless throughout it. And actually, when Dave said that, it made me think that actually the, the characters that do the most emotion is Rutger Hauer, like he was saying, when he's the most sort of flamboyant character and the most sort of out there character. And, and actually, the ones that show the most sort of, um, like, regret and misery are the actual androids themselves, replicants. Uh, and that sort of made the film make more sense to me. So... Dave, you've made Blade Runner make sense to me, and it is on the hit list. Oh, oh. <laughs> that one's for you, Winston. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> bad, bad judging. That's oh, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Okay, so let's go around in a second. Also, it means Gav doesn't get to play a victory song, <laughs> which he's done the last the last three times he's won. Which yeah. is, I don't want to say affected my decision, but it, was, it, it wasn't far away. <laughs> the fact is, is that all of those victories came against you. So. Yeah, yeah, I tried to let that not affect my decision. Bringing up Gattaca wasn't a good move, by the way. You know what? You know what? And I didn't do the impression of you. I could have done that impression of you, but I didn't. It's true. Maybe it's time. <laughs> it's time, isn't it? It is time. Okay. I knew if I went against you, fucking impression. Hello, so everyone. We Welcome to Bills on Trial. I, 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 I will let the listener judge on whether that's accurate or not. You sound like Mark Owen. I know. Right, let's go round in a circle and uh, get each other's opinions, the real opinions on the film. So, starting with Dave. I was bored as hell. <laughs> oh, oh, I, I, I was bored as hell, I've got to admit, but I I meant what I said. When I started thinking about it, and I was forced to think about it for this podcast, when I did start thinking about it and started reading what people had said, the amount, the levels to this film are staggering. There's not many films out there that elicit this kind of discussion. I do mean that. And for that reason, I don't believe it can be a shit film. No. It no. can't go on the shit. I do know what you mean. It is fairly... I know. There's I would be surprised so that it's so boring, but it's a hit. And there it, are so yeah. many levels to this film. There's so much to discuss about it. And, you know, we could discuss it for hours on end and we could still be learning new things. You know, the stuff that I've said that people may disagree with entirely. They may have gotten a completely different reading from the film and have something else to say, but that's the, the magic of it. And it's not... I don't think it's it's Emperor's New Clothes, you know what I mean? I don't think we're discussing something where there is no substance. I do think there is. Well, yeah. that, that was your argument, Gav. So do you think there is substance to Blade Runner, or is it, it, do you agree with what you were saying where it's just style? 
I, I, I pretty much agree with how I, um, I gave the argument there. I, I do think it is very, very visually stunning, and I really, really like the soundtrack as well. I'm glad that you didn't bring that up because I, I think it's a brilliant soundtrack. I did not do it, but um, but I, I, I do think it's, it's, it's there's no real substance there. I, I mean. I, there is, there is some. It's, as I said, it's sort of like a skeletal structure of the book, but it's you know he misses so much. Oh, I mean, I love the book. I love the book, and I don't like the film. But Philip K. Dick loved the film. I know, what I know. It's he, didn't, he didn't see the full finished version, but what bits he did see, Philip K. Dick was really on board with. And I think you just got to tip your cap eventually. Well, if he didn't see the full version, then <laughs> leads me to ask, what did he see? One of the many, many, many edits of Ridley Scott. To pretty be honest, much, they probably much. left all out that that bloody absolute terrible voiceover that Harrison Ford did about you that much. Well, no one wanted that in there in the first place. Okay, so uh, so yeah, that's everyone's opinion. So, what do we reckon? Well, it's Joel, what's Joel, Joel, Joel has an opinion. <laughs> I've, I've pretty much given mine. Yeah, to be I, I more or less get to say mine. Yeah. Um, I've been both both bored and kind of wild at the same time. It's a really strange film. <laughs> it is, isn't I it? Wild. I, I don't. It's not one of them films which I kind of think you know on a lazy Sunday afternoon. I'll, oh, God, I'll yeah. stick Blade yeah. Runner on because you literally have to concentrate. <laughs> You've for got to be in the mood two and a half yeah, hours yeah, or whatever. I've got to say, it's a great script as well. I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue, but what dialogue there is, some great one-liners. I mean, it, it was also nice to see Rutger Hauer actually giving a decent performance. I think some of the things he's done recently, you kind of forget what a good actor he mm. was. Mm. I mean, there's a line in, in Blade Runner where he says to uh, Tyrell, I've done some questionable things. And I was just thinking that the Rugger Howard could say all these days, I've made some questionable things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a lot of people from that generation probably could. So. Um, yeah, no, I, I did. I thought Rugger Howard was brilliant in it. Uh, you know, that, it's a very famous fact, but the fact that his entire uh, closing monologue was, was written by himself, yeah. uh, which I thought was brilliant. I think it was the, the one really great piece of dialogue in the entire film. Mm. Just goes to show you that it wasn't even written by Ridley Scott or the scriptwriters. Well, Ridley Scott had such a, a devout vision of how he wanted this to pan out. It meant so much to him. He says this is his most complete work, the one that means the most to him. And to let someone else take over yeah. and write such a pivotal speech just goes to show that Rutger Howard got it. Yeah. Whatever it was that Ridley Scott had in his mind's eye, Rutger Howard nailed and, it. And, and, and Ridley Scott decided to include it and mm-hmm. give it prominence. So it's still, you know, it's his decision. Well, it's all sort of pointless now anyway because the fact is that we're getting a sequel to it which is coming out uh, this week and is, is it going to be a case of Ridley Scott just tampering with Absolutely, the film again? Absolutely, it will be. I haven't watched the Alien sequels. Oh, did you watch Alien Covenant? Yeah, oh. I friggin' absolutely hated it. <laughs> did you? Um, yeah, like absolutely. And having watched them, I've got zero hopes for yeah. this film whatsoever. Yeah. I'm hoping that maybe from the trailer that they do cover some of the aspects that they missed off from the book, as I said before, you know, those kind of competing police forces. Maybe that's the case with this new K character. I think the fact that it's called K might be a bit on the nose. as a Philip K. Dick. Do you get when it? Did, wink, wink, haha. When, when did Alien Covenant actually come out? Because, I mean... This year. This year? But he, but that's why, that's why we so, did so, Alien so, 3, so remember? Is, oh, yeah. So this is terrible. He would have tanked two franchises. Possibly. In a year, possibly. We don't yeah. know. We haven't seen it yet. We don't know. No, yeah, it's true, but... I'm just saying he's... he's <laughs> Harrison Ford, uh, you know, when he came back for Star Wars, really wanted Han Solo to, to be killed off, didn't he? And I think he even said in the in the original, he'd have liked Han Solo to, to possibly be killed off. Wow. So I reckon he's just going to go around killing off all his characters. And, <laughs> and then maybe, you know, Indiana Jones will, will die in the next Indiana Jones film and he's just going to put an end to, to literally all his he's films. Just, he's just tying up loose ends. <laughs> <laughs> like Al Pacino at the end of Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right so uh, I have done another caption contest this week 
And so this week is a, <laughs> a very amusing um, <coughs> still of Harrison Ford being attacked by Daryl Hannah's character, and he is being the life of him is being squeezed out of him by Daryl Hannah's legs. So you can see kind of Harrison Ford's grimace as he's got uh, thighs either side of his ears. So we've got a few here, which is uh, uh, there's got to be an easier way to sneeze, um, <laughs> which I think is quite good. Um, I is another one here. I think you're a little too big for a piggyback ride. <laughs> Never too big. <laughs> um, and, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, Channel 4's One Born Every Minute gets more graphic each week. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. I, to be honest, I think that might be my favourite one, but hang on, we've got it. We've got, I think this has been our most popular one, yeah? We've got uh, um, two giant hot dogs work together to strangle Indiana Jones. <laughs> uh, uh, we've got one here, uh, Natural birth is so beautiful. How dare you judge any strong woman? Uh, that poor girl is going to need stitches afterwards. <laughs> this is getting a bit horrible, to be honest. I should be reading this out. <laughs> Did you not vet these? <laughs> Sorry. I would say that my favourite one here is uh, from... Uh, oh, I just think it's, it's quite funny. It's, it's layered again. Uh, is this passing the Bechdel test? Oh. Uh. <laughs> I, I've got to approve that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, right. So I will say that from next week we're actually doing something a bit different so I know I said earlier that we pick all of the films at random from our hat but for the entire month of October we are going to have Horror Month so we're going to be celebrating Halloween by each week reviewing one of our favourite underrated horror films so each one of us has got a choice uh, we will be picking our own films to defend and the other roles within the show will be randomised so first up next week is going to be Dave and Dave do you want to tell us bit about your film uh yeah i'm gonna defend sleepy hollow tim burton's 1999 i think it was classic well yeah. to me classic but a lot of people i know actually don't like it so uh but it's a film i'm very passionate about i watch it every halloween so uh i'm looking forward to it okay so the other roles in the show the judge is going to be me the prosecution is going to be Alex and the character witness once again is going to be Joel so uh, really looking forward to that one to be honest and looking forward to, to the majority of Horror Month uh, so just to close the show just want to say thank you very much once again to everybody who has listened we really do appreciate all of the likes and the shares and the subscribes that we've had so far we really appreciate it please do give us a listen on iTunes Films on Trial and on soundcloud.com slash films dash on dash trial you can follow us on Twitter as well at Film Trials. So please, why don't you so um, you recommend a couple of films for us that we might put on trial in November? Uh, also, while you're on Twitter, why don't you give our graphic artist a follow? He is Winston Sang at the underscore Quirks. He is the one who has been producing the hilarious artwork <laughs> week in week out. I must say, uh, I, I do think you make a very fetching Booker uh, Howard there, Joel, in mm. this week's poster. <laughs> I have had a comment that. Uh, to, I got today talking about our Dracula poster from the other week uh, <laughs> and somebody said that they thought it was the most terrifying vision of Dracula they'd ever seen so well, uh, I, I try <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I will say that last week's notebook one has got to be the all time favourite for me for me too yeah uh, so yeah while you're on Twitter as well why don't you give our sound as guy lads man the guy who sorts out all of our sound problems every single week he is Mr. Austin Ray and you can follow him on Twitter at Aussie Ray also why don't you check out Facebook, Instagram, WordPress, and YouTube by typing in 
films on trial on any one of them. So just want to say thank you very much for everyone who has listened, and we will be in your ears next week when we review Sleepy Hollow. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you.